Darmstadt on Air number 5 Hello Avatar Stefan Prinz in conversation with Beth Coleman Hello and thank you for joining Darmstadt on Air our new series of conversations on music and experiment My name is Thomas Schäfer from the Darmstadt Summer Course team and I welcome you to our podcast Since the COVID-19 pandemic made this year's festival and academy impossible, we had to postpone the Darmstadt summer course to summer 2021. In the time between, we'd like to continue the discussions on music that Darmstadt is so connected with. We've invited some of our academy tutors and guest artists to have a conversation on a subject of their own choice. They select their dialogue partner and share the recording with our community. For this edition, the Belgian composer, performer, co-director of the Nadar Ensemble and professor of composition at the Hochschule für Musik in Dresden, Stefan Prinz, met Beth Coleman via Zoom on July 21st, 2020. Please enjoy listening. So, hello Beth Coleman. I'm very happy to introduce you to the community um, of the Darmstadt Summer Courses and Beyond. And I want to show uh, slow first shortly introduce you. Beth Coleman holds a PhD in comparative literature from NYU. You were associate professor of comparative media studies at MIT and a Berkman fellow at Harvard University in 2011-2012. You were also the writer or you are the writer of the book Hello Avatar Rise of a Networked Generation which was released by MIT Press in 2011, of which we will talk much more later. And currently you're an associate professor of experimental digital media at the University of Waterloo, Toronto, and coordinator or co-director of the Critical Media Lab. You so are there's, there's one update, Stefan. Okay, um, I am glad. I to now have joined the faculty at the University of Toronto, where I'm um, an associate professor at the um, Faculty of Information and um, ICCIT, which is uh, an information and technology institute. So I'm running the Cities Platform Lab in that location now. Wonderful. Congratulations. That's also something that um, has a connection to Amsterdam, if I got it correctly. I was um, an artist in residence at the Wach when I was finishing my PhD and before I went to MIT. And I have ongoing uh, collaborations and research relationships there and similar with Berlin as well. Okay, great, great. Well, in general, you're specialized in digital media, race theory, game culture, and literary studies. We will be talking about that. Um, but I would also like to talk a little bit more about your artistic uh, creative outputs. And we will probably be talking about the SoundLab Collective and then your work as um, a media arts creator uh, and a DJ. Mm -hmm. So this is just a very broad outline. I hope we get there. Um, an hour is, or however long we will talk, it will go by quickly. So I would like to shine some light, particularly on your research, both artistic and academic, into this, into digital media. 
and its impact on society and the human condition. In the world of contemporary music or new music or experimental music, I mean, there are a million definitions of it. Some are really horrible. I definitely don't like, for example, the one academic music, which is used a lot. Anyway, in this world, the interest into the use of new media has been increased or has been increasing a lot in the last 10, 15 years. I position my own art artistic output, my compositional work within that tendency. So I'm personally also very much interested, engaged with, um, fascinated by the interaction between the mediated and the non-mediated and everything that lies in between. And it is actually through this personal artistic research that in 2012, I came across your book, Hello Avatar, Rise in a Networks, Rise of a Network Generation. And that has been a really um, inspirational encounter for me. First of all, very thanks a lot for writing that book. Since it was my personal introduction to you, to your thinking, your world, I think it would be opportune to also start this conversation with um, Hello Avatar. The book focuses on what you call cross-reality or X-reality, a continuum of exchanges between virtual and real spaces. In the book you write... In this book, I look at the emergence of a pervasive media use that defines a world that is no longer either virtual or real, but representative of a diversity of network combinations. I know it's a completely impossible question um, to boil down your book in this conversation, so I'm not going to be asking that. However, um, I was wondering if you would like to expand a little bit upon the concept of cross-reality for listeners who are not familiar with your work. Uh, yeah, so um, X-Reality, uh, a decade ago, when I published Hello Avatar, was um, an emergent state. We were societally, and we can talk about whether when we say society, it's global or whether we're talking about, you know, particular types of locations, but there's a way in which there was uh, a, a world of social media that was emerging and people were starting to practice. And it was also um, augmented reality and virtual reality are older technologies, but this was also um, in the 2010s, uh, a moment of resurgence around new interfaces, new hardware were, were showing up. People had smartphones for about a decade by then, and we had apps where you could hold them up and see different things in the world in real time. So it was... Um, looking at this moment where it was, we had slipped into a daily life of a sense of pervasive media, pervasive computing and screens being built into our everyday experience. And now 10 years later in 2020, we are absolutely accelerated in that um, daily experience of 
information being brought to us and experiences happening across different levels of um, mediation. And one of the things that I was thinking about, uh, I guess ongoingly, both during my like artistic and sound practice, as well as in like theoretical space is, where is it that we think there is an absence of mediation? Uh, a friend of mine, um, a theorist called Mike Anani, who writes about sound quite a bit. Um, one of the conversations that we were having when we were both in Cambridge together is, is this conversation that we have face to face, there is a, uh, a framework and kind of linguistic practice that would suggest it is unmediated. But if we think through transmission and if we stick just with the sonic, you know, we get to the diaphragm, we get to the different levels of mediation that are part of the daily life without the kind of explicit technology interfaces and platforms and layers. And today, you and I, with our headsets on, with our uh, voice over IP video window open, we now take this, particularly because of the acceleration of um, COVID-19, we actually take this as a normal or normalized mode of transmission. And it's really kind of that this cascading into how are we producing habit around this? And also what are some of the things that we might um, attend to in terms of is there ongoing transformation here in uh, perception and phenomenon around, um, I don't know, it sounds a bit vast, but being in the world. Uh, so Hello Avatar was a good, um, I don't know if I can say bookmark because I don't know if the other end of the, of the mm. bookcase will be, but in the 2010s to take time to do ethnographic work and um, other research about um, some of the neuroscience around how we are um, comprehending um, modes of mediation. One of the things that I found was, and you find this since you were a kid watching cartoons, the um, verisimilitude or the veracity of an audio signal takes us very far um, in giving life to and a sense of, well, giving life to animated figures. So whether we're talking about, uh, what are they, uh, Ren and Stimpy? How are they called? The ones who are, oh. so, are so hyper-violent? Like just the way in which we understand things being animated, being, being filled with life, the, the audio aspect is uh, really powerful component that because of, well, because we are um, designed to be a hyper visual culture, it's literally built into the inheritance of the enlightenment. And many, many people have written about the, 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 the dominance of visual culture and visual signal. And many of them have written about it in relationship to um, whether it's Foucault with the Panopticon or someone like Nick Murzoff who talks about the right to look 
as a counterbalance to a, a hegemonic, militaristic overview that these regimes of uh, these optical regimes have have helped to produce. Wendy Chun's work speaks to this as well. Um, so part of I hadn't I didn't make this super explicit in Hello Avatar because you know essentially what I was trying to talk about is why do game worlds and virtual spaces feel so important to us? Why are the exchanges that we have across social media, um, why are they productive? Why are they generative? And I don't mean that in a positive way, as we know with both misinformation and the type of flame wars that erupt when people are not hearing each other well enough because some of the uh, uh, shortness of whether it's a tweet or uh, the extremity of YouTube that always literally solves toward the most extreme version, whether it's for getting attention or whether it's for the algorithmic production of how our attention is curated. Um, th there's also, I think in the background that maybe you were hearing um, an argument about um, a sonic signal in relation to what is the, the dominance of the visual signal. And in some ways I would say, I, it's not that I, I reconcile them, but I do talk about um, particularly in around this period of 2010, the actual avatars in game worlds, the actual avatars in the social media systems that we're using, they're almost always awkward, either in an uncanny valley awkwardness where it's approximating life in such a way that when it misses, it's totally cringeworthy and it's, it's like a horror. Um, and that certainly heralds back to a very long history of uh, whether it's Frankenstein or other cyborgs or automaton, um, that uncanniness that is you know, that you see in literature, movies, et cetera. Um, so I, I, I always, uh, I continue to make it clear in the, um, the things that I'm looking at at that period of time that it's not that they are so persuasive visually that people are forgetting that it is a machinima or a simulated world production. So what then is it that is, um, inviting people to kind of feel passionately or go through all kinds of demonstrations and connections and, and, and these things. And some of it is um, what I call the, the experience of the actual, where even though the, the visual simulation in some ways can get in the way, it is carried along with However, the signaling, whether it's um, the lucidity of the sound aspect to it, or even just some of these platforms, I also watch them go from text-based to um, having uh, chat, you know, voice, which, which is also part of the embedded history of like online gaming when the computing apparatus is able to 
support, you know, in, increasing types of things and depth and richness or, and such. Um, but from the very early days when it was just text-based MUDs and MOOs and all of these funny acronyms, we still saw the same thing of people feeling it very profoundly. So I was asking a question about what is this actual of experience that mediation, extreme mediation, uh, or our kind of simulation of no mediation and this idea of face-to-face, -face, all of these experiences share a kind of practice of the actual. So just trying to think through what are some of the design and scientific things that we can understand about how comprehension and exchange and communication is happening there. Um, so to move deeper into this, um, a decade later in 2020, the, the things that have been points of obsession for me are, in my view, we've gone from this uh, online internet, social media, and perhaps, if you will, we'll include game worlds in that this kind of social interactive design. And part of the reason that my research group, Cities Platform, is um, we're focusing on cities, um, smart technology, and public space is because one of the shifts that has happened here is increasingly, and this has everything to do with um, AI and kind of the, the lower version of this, the sensor-based version of this, of IoT or Internet of Things. And, you know, we can call these tech a little bit by different names, but that's, that's good enough in terms of conveying the, the idea. Increasingly, we're seeing these arrays of machine-to-machine -machine communication where the human subject is literally outside of the loop. Information is taken up and moved around, and we feel that, we feel that very profoundly with just the um, emergent behaviors that we're seeing around AI. So whether it's controversies around facial recognition, how it's being used, against whom, where it's um, where there's a kind of civic body, which tends to be highly educated, rich places like San Francisco, where they have made it illegal to have facial recognition technology on the street. And you're just like, are we killing ourselves with irony here? You're like, <laughs> you all are the authors. Uh, I mean, they're not the singular authors, not by a long shot. And I'm still only understanding things about the use of AI and facial recognition and other types of data systems in the wild in China by proxy and not firsthand. But this is certainly something that is quite important for us to also, also understand in terms of what's being produced, how things are being produced. So to have, if we were at the center in a kind of um, cybernetic or assemblage or prosthetic figuration of human computer interaction, and Hello Avatar, I think speaks to that kind of framework of how the components 
are working together. And there's no claim then, and there's certainly not a claim now, that the human actors are in control or directing the whole thing. I mean, part of part of the problem and part of the coincidence and crash and happenstance is that we are not necessarily in control. But if we look at the moment that we are living in now, uh, it feels even more um, advanced in terms of uh, these networked systems that increasingly do not necessarily include us. And, you know, the fast dystopian read is more and more where the copper tops. And I mean, the problem with, I mean, the problem with the matrix and the problem with the problem with the matrix, in addition to um, obviously no one should ever make a sequel, let alone like a third, um, that's tragic. (laughs) <laughs> but but it's but it's also the Wachowski siblings willful or not misreading of Baudrillard in terms of part of what made it a dramatic movie is the desert of the real could be distinguished from other states. And I think Baudrillard is saying um the 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 diabolical machine of simulation that we are inculcated in, there's not a front and a back. There's not, there's not an exit, you know? So once you take the thing out of your neck and you're in your gray clothes, and you're eating mush. Now you're in the real. Um, I know this sounds, I don't know if it sounds trivial or not trivial, but to be in these ongoing waves of crisis, whether it's signaled by something like the last American election and the, um, the ways in which a group like Cambridge Analytica, it's, it's become fairly well studied and fairly well published, the nature of the type of manipulation and the kind of um, uh, absolute confusion that misinformation is able to really productively uh, generate. I guess I'm trying to stake a claim in terms of cities, public space, and a not, not a right of refusal. So uh, what is uh, GDPR where you have a right to have warnings about your personal information, you accept things, you don't accept things, you have a right to have your information extracted from whatever IP, not IP, but media group is taking up your data. This is interesting in terms of trying to further make policy and practice around how privacy has historically been understood. But I guess in both the um, applied research that I'm doing in terms of how cities are actually building infrastructure and some of the more um, speculative and imaginative spaces, both theoretical and uh, art making wise, I'm interested in trying to kind of trouble through a, a technology of the surround that 
we're not actually going to ever be able to armor up sufficiently that we are moving through these heavily surveilled, heavily uh, censored spaces that is the world that we're, that we're occupying, is the world that we're in, um, whether we ourselves are giving up information in terms of our behaviors or whether our information is being taken up by other means. Most major cities in the world, literally, you cannot cross a street without some of your information being swept up into the ether. And the, at the moment, the richer the countries, the more tech, the, more the, the technology array is in effect. I'm, I have to think more and look at other people's work in terms of will it always be dominant in terms of um, what historically has been kind of like first world and rich countries or rich cities? Because if we look at the type of activity that China is doing in African countries around testing, for, for example, facial recognition systems, um, we also might think about the ways in which a kind of colonial and post-colonial has, or a, a colonial framework has always um, brought to, I, I don't even know what to call it, but like the a, a colonized landscape, um, these technologies of surveillance and control. And so mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think them at the same time, even if they're not, not the same histories or the same stories. So the technology of the surround, which is what I'm, which is something that I'm working on right now, we'll publish um, in a, a journal called Catalyst in the fall. Um, certainly Hales, Harney and Moten in their work on the undercommons, this idea of the surround and in the undercommons, the surround is this space of blackness. It's this space of escape outside of kind of this, the, the fortress, which is, you know, the, the imperial presence. And if you go back to the movies, the idea of the Western, when you were a child, I think that this idea circulated almost every place in the world that you have the Indians or whatever, then you've got the fort and the, the cowboys or the, the colonists are showing up. Like, so it's, it's, it's that, it's that configuration kind of like played out. And I'm interested in technology of the surround. Certainly we are literally surrounded. We are immersed in, in this array. It is part of, I don't know what it means to say it's part of nature, but, uh, because I'm not sure what happens to nature if you say it is now part of nature. Um, maybe that is a, a gesture toward trying to bring in some of the arguments about the Anthropocene that it is. But we can't talk about that. We're going to shut the door on that because <laughs> I already have um, suggested that the human is not at the center of this. So... That's um, a kind of winding road in terms of some of the places that I'm thinking about things and, and doing things. Yeah, when you were talking about 
Well, um, the CDS platform and then connecting that to the, um, the cross-reality you describe in Hello Avatar, I had to think of this event. I don't know if you heard of it. In 2015 in Madrid, there was this, um, the so-called Holograms for Freedom. Do you know of that? Uh, Hologramas por la Libertad. It's a very interesting moment, I think, because um, the Spanish government at that point had mm, voted a law that it was it would be illegal for a certain amount of people to conglomerate and protest yeah. in front of government buildings. Yeah. And then some smart people said, okay, we cannot do that physically. Yeah. We will do our holograms will be protesting and you can throw them in jail. Yeah. Um, That's so good. Yeah, I found that extremely smart, but also really telling. And what struck me as well was that one of the spokespeople, uh, the spokeswoman actually, she said at that point, you will only be able to express yourself if you become a hologram. Which actually in that context, of course, it makes total sense because... Um, as a hologram, you cannot you can say something that you couldn't say as a human, a physically present person at that point because you would have been thrown into jail. Yeah. Um, so I found that an interesting crossroads between architecture, um, how a city, what it means to have specific buildings in a city, and then yeah. um, how you can protest. Um, virtually, but not physically. And, and so the connections between these different identities. And I really had to think when that happened of, of um, how you describe X reality, how these different realities seem to be crossing each other and create very weird connections. Yeah, um, I mean, we're having, it's both opportunity and absurdity. And I don't know if it's important to try to make it comparative in terms of other, other periods of time. And I mean, we've had a society, the spectacle, you know, DeBoer really was able to make a a vivid case in terms of capital and the eternal kind of distraction that spectacle is able to, produces in relationship to capital and we are so accelerated down this path and part of what I uh, was arguing in Hello Avatar is it really we were at a moment where the Sanskrit for word avatar is the God descending into the hero's body. Like it becomes mortal, finite, and located to produce some heroic task. And then that word was taken up, and there's a particular history and sequence in terms of when in in computer gaming did Avatar become, you know, the the nomenclature. But I did want to hail back in the beginning of Hello Avatar to this moment of the God descends into the hero, because like with the early internet, 
we have these doors opening into a temporary moment of a sense of excitement and expansion and really a lot of possibility around delight and exploration to be in two places at the same time is something that we were never supposed to do at, or be or be possible as kind of the finite human beings that we, that we are. And I don't know. I mean, I think the reason that we make music and make artworks is because people like us continue to find delight and possibility and uh, opportunities for connection. But I would not say that in a broader sense, um, this sense of avatar of like the God descending into the hero is the moment that we're living with now. I think, I mean, again, shifting things to trying to think through what is the possibility and the power and how it's distributed if we're indeed in living in a kind of a technology of the surround because one of the reasons why I'm committed to trying to think and design and collaborate in a surround that is not only figured as surveillance and control uh, the, the, the three C's from like cybernetics, command, control, it's, it's a military uh, constitution. I'm committed to this because um, the alternative is just um, dire, repetitive and, and lethal and lethal in, in ways that we've seen replicated over and over again. Um, and one of the things that I think we, we were able to tune into fairly early on in some of the discourse around pandemic and global pandemic and lockdown is where once you lock a population down, once you control a population in a certain way, um, you see kind of the, um, the compressions and the violences that emerge very, very quickly, whether it's the rise in um, domestic violence, whether it is um, people who are living marginally, let's say in a city, once public space is shut down for traffic, the places where you might sleep, the places where you might get some money in passing, literally they disappear. So we get to a very extreme version very quickly of uh, kind of a reconfiguration of the um, like normative patriarchal home and then just the people who are just cut loose. And the stories that I've read about India, I think are really um, indicative of people who are uh, making their way, moving in a kind of kinetic city as the uh, architect and um, architectural theorist Rahul Marotra has talked about the kinetic city. When you have this lockdown, this uh, recontrol to try to take care of something as um, difficult to control as a virus, um, you see uh, just 
space has been reconfigured and people literally have no place to go. Um, anyway, where were we going with our conversation? <laughs> um, I was also thinking, reading through Hello Avatar again the past days, um, I also realized you talk a lot about Second Life or Second Life is something that appears yeah. several times in the book. Yeah. And I was wondering, because Second Life today really has pretty much disappeared or um, doesn't, yeah, in any case doesn't have, doesn't mean what it used to mean in 2010. So I was wondering if there is something to be learned there, if there is, if you could imagine a reason for this platform to disappear and, and yeah, what, are there any lessons that we can learn from that? What does that mean that second life? has? This yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about the second life hype cycle because I understood in terms of the timing of hello avatar that when the book came out in 2011, the hype cycle would be over. So part of what I wanted to document and also interrogate is what was that hype about? Because I don't know if you played Final Fantasy. I don't know if you were World of Warcraft, but this is not the first time that an online platform, a video game essentially has gotten attention. And in fact, Second Life never had the numbers that um, World of Warcraft and other actually really popular video games continue to have because it wasn't a game. And there were so many aspects of it that were not fun and were difficult to use. But the argument that I make um, in looking at the media coverage and for me, the kind of pinnacle of the hype was at the Davos Economic Forum. The founder of Second Life was invited to a dinner party in his honor because you had world leaders and leaders in economics and political leaders who were so inspired by this idea that it's a virtual space. So there's no... Um, uh, some of the constraints of there's not enough resources, there's not enough places for people, that goes away. Um, we can model things, we can test things out, we can play through things and then export them back into the world. Um, but the reason I think essentially that Second Life failed is um, built into their code, how that world was designed and built into their motto of this idea of the second life that we go from our boring, drab, real world life and we go have this uh, fancy or exotic second life in this space of simulation. And what I think that they didn't pay attention to and they had no incentive to pay attention to it because there's no successful video game that is, well, I don't know. I was going to say that that is designed for the actual, but that's actually not true. The reason people are enjoying the video games is 
procedurally, it's good gameplay and there's a real sense of playing together. Like I have to, I would have to kind of code this differently if we're talking about single player games, but we don't have to right now. We can just stick with multiplayer. With Second Life, um, it, it, it just fell into redundancy and cliche so, so quickly because if you're going to have your fabulous Second Life, then you're going to be six foot two, you're going to have uh, a perfect physique, you're going to have a boat, you're going to have a big house. And this is so boring and tedious. It's just so, there is no um, tension or discovery if you're able to just reproduce some bad fantasy of a rich style, a lifestyle of rich and famous. And the reason I spend some time looking at perversion in Second Life, so whether it's the furries or whether it's this um, virtual cannibal who I, I do a, uh, an interview with is, Yeah, some of it is um, some of it's fucked up in a in a clear way that is is part of the history that has is outside of game simulation. But it's fascinating to me in terms of the reason I was interested in the virtual cannibal and this crew of people who were doing ritualistic acts using this platform is their claim was it's illegal to kill people and eat them in the real world. So we are not simulating this. We are doing this. It is like a performative speech act. And the agreement was this is actual. This is actually happening. And, you know, you get this bizarre meta where um, the woman and I Air, I'm air quoting it, but the, the, the woman who's being killed and cooked in one of the scenarios that the other thing is like the archive is rich. You can find all this stuff, even when people kind of abandoned it. Um, she's, she's in real time chatting about what does it feel like to be cooked? Because obviously the platform will afford that. Um, and digging down into those conversations, like part of my conversation with the cannibal was, what's your claim to her being a woman, this person you're cooking? And he said, oh no, I know she's a woman, I can tell. And this, there's no ground for that as a truth claim, like all the <laughs> different layers. And I was trying to understand in claiming that you know she's a woman, is that a, related to claiming this is an actual experience? Hmm. I don't think they are the same claim. I think to say, oh, I know the person I'm talking to a woman is because my, my gaydar or my mandar or whatever is so attuned that I would know if that was a guy who was just clowning me. And I've got an anecdote at another point in the book where, and. This is, um, the story is, and this is, this is uh, 
a story that these two people are narrating themselves. And I take it as an example because the story they tell is they were two men playing female avatars and they met in a game and they start to have, if we call it like a lesbian love affair, it won't actually make any sense, but you have two female avatars and you know, they're having uh, an affair. And then they find out, and this is all blog and again, self-reporting, but then they find out somehow one way or another that they're actually both men. And then they bro it up. They're like, oh yeah, we're friends. Yeah, cool. And um, so I feel like that claim of, yeah, we're really straight and yeah, we're just bros is similar to the cannibal saying, oh no, I know she's a woman. And particularly the second one with the cannibal, it really just stinks of misogyny in terms of, and that's part of the, the parable of, I mean, I think there's really interesting things going on there and it doesn't mean it is outside of it also being clearly coded as we are men who kill and eat women. <laughs> that has, that has uh, a history and a story. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I had to have to say caught my attention is this absolute insistence above everything because of mediation that this is actual, that this is something we are truly experiencing. So that was kind of the, the thing that kept me circling around what what is happening here despite you know the the different types of narratives that were being woven into what their activity was um i thought that was an interesting way that second life was being used i also thought it was interesting that people would use it to make big uh human genome was the, the sequencing, I don't remember exactly when it was fully sequenced, but also around this time, early 2000 to the 2010, there was also this kind of popular kind of surge around the idea of human genome and sequencing. And people were playing with some of those things because they're just like, oh, we've got this giant sandbox. Let's, let's model some things. So those were interesting, but they were always only going to be narrow kind of minoritarian uses of a platform such as that. And essentially it failed because it's boring to live your fantasy without any real um, game design or any stakes. So instead of it being this kind of panacea and you can model how to like solve starvation in the world or whatever the politics at, at Davos thought was going to happen. It just was, you know, like nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that it got so much attention was, I thought, uh, a good indicator of how might we imagine building some of these tools for near future. So there's, there's appetite for it. And you know, somebody like Bruce Sterling has been explicit from the minute uh, augmented reality start to pop up again that this could be an absolute nightmare because all of the informational virtual space that is part of the 
geolocative environments that we walk through, they could end up just being stuffed with advertisements. I mean, think about walking around, you know, the central squares of Amsterdam or Berlin or places that already have a certain kind of touristic uh, energy to them. But the other side of possibility, and this is the type of work that we are doing with my group, but also in collaboration with a network of designers and data scientists is how might we take this opportunity to produce a making visible and making actionable of kind of the data environments around us. Um, For various reasons, I've spent less and less time in kind of immersive platforms online and more and more time kind of moving through how are these technologies embedded in the world? Is that a, a place where, or can art play a role in that um, search? Like finding a way to make those technological environments livable or suggesting changes in them? Or how do you see that? Um, Of course, I think that art must play a role in that um, because, uh, so I'll, I'll show you, these are, this is a wireframe of, let me see if I can do this. So the, the concept mm-hmm. is um, sound transforms space. And what I did was, uh-huh design with um, a friend of mine, Tommy Martinez, who ran the studio that I was invited for the residency. And I'd started um, with a, an architect called Farzan um, Lofty Jam. We had started designing a program where in VR, you would use your controllers to create Um, a virtual 3D object. And I built this up at um, Pioneer Works to the point where I'm going to stop this for a second so I can see if I can find one where you can see the sculpture where you would have a VR conductor Hmm. who was responding to a sound impulse in the space. So you have an input, which is the sound that is... um, happening in the space. And as the conductor continues to draw, you have an object that is essentially um, a shard of that time and that place. So it's a sculpture of something being captured in time. And the idea is the sound has transformed the space and this object is the outcome that will will stay with us in the way that you have, you know, a sculpture or something that as a marker. And um, so Excuse me, Beth, to interrupt. So this sculpture is there in the virtual space, right? It's there in the virtual space. And then, then what we went on to do was um, 3D print them. So you have an actual object. And what I'm working with in this series now is uh, scale. Because when we 3D print them, uh, 
in Red Hook, um, they were still uh, a small scale and the, uh, the people who have invited me to come and take this project to a next level to have uh, the ideas designing 360 sound immersion in relation to uh, sculptures that are uh, a larger scale, human scale or bigger than human scale. Um, so just thinking through how do we materialize that and also how do we um, take further this concept of sound as transforming space because historically, uh, particularly with uh, modernism, uh, architecture is understood as something that is static. And with postmodernist architecture, we literally have structures that are made from living bricks or undulating forms or that have actually generative aspects to them. And some of the archive that I've just started to peek into is there's um, just medieval illustrations like illuminated manuscripts where you've got drawings of human figures coming in and making a sound and walls sprouting ears and answering back. Hmm. So I'm, I'm just trying to kind of trace this history that exists of sound transforming space and space transforming, you know, speak, calling back to us in terms of the, the architectural environment. And some of the um, audio projects around this sonic space of the Hagia Sophia have been really interesting to me. Um, the ones that are going in the direction of a plug-in that will simulate that room are less interesting to me than, um, well, I don't know. I, 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 ha I don't know if it's less interesting. I, I'm, I'm still listening and looking and thinking about what do I want to do here? What, what can I do in this space? But, so, but this, is, this is just a, a tangent in relation to the question you asked. The reason I, I'm totally devoted to this idea of speculative and artistic work and exploration is incredibly important for how we continue to move forward with a certain politics, with a certain kind of um, ethical care, um, because literally uh, engineering systems and more recently AI systems, they are, they, they're not designed to address or incorporate or take up some of the other qualities that we need of being in the world. And um, the arguments and the cities in flames over, let's say, uh, racially biased algorithmic production. I mean, I'm trying to equate police violence and algorithmic bias. They're not identical, but they are, there's an intertwined history there in terms of how certain mechanisms are produced to to move in a different direction will take not just engineering prowess it will take other types of inputs and we know this from the other disciplines and modes of producing knowledge and 
communication in the world. So in short, poetics has to be part of it. Otherwise, we're not going to get it right. With the understanding that as we get it right, it's always a, a rolling thing. Like things are not right always or forever, but we certainly can do better than where we are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think for me, um, that's definitely also one of the, um, you mentioned art as a way to find delight and an opportunity of connection. Um, I can absolutely identify with that. I think another important thing for me that art can add to this conversation, um, let's say the more engineering part of the conversation is that it's, uh, it's subversive way of dealing with the technologized uh, environment, the way that it looks for the borders of what a specific technology or an environment allows, and then trying to push those borders, and in doing so also finding a kind of freedom within that environment um, is definitely something for me in my personal experience while creating arts. Um, an important feeling, but I think that's also an important thing to communicate to to a society. I don't know if you um, agree with that or... No, I do agree. And I also wonder where we are with margin and center these days, mm. because um, we've, we've read, we've been told, and we've maybe experienced that the internet now is a... Uh, um, uh, certainly making people more extreme and people are finding their, their, their tribes. I, I don't know. Um, but there's also a way in which um, there might not be, I guess what I'm trying to say is more simple. Um, and this is something that I say to the students, my students also, um, what do you want to learn? What, how do you want to live? Because I don't think that we have to have such kind of such an impoverished atmosphere and that, you know, essentially I said second life failed because the fantasy of having everything you want is boring. I think that's what I'm saying again in terms of, I know that the reason that historically there's been an avant-garde is because it's not supposed to be the majority culture. It's supposed to be the opposite of the bourgeois, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that we should help instigate everyone continuing the charge and heading into the exploratory and experimental. Um, I mean, you know how fun it is. It just makes it, it's totally bewildering to me that other people wouldn't want to explore. And there's something, um, one of the things that the um, kind of, I don't know if self-help literature was always popular or whether there's a, a new kind of popularization of self-help literature, but the language around authentic self and true self and there's a way in which that's often tied to a kind of creativity and generosity. I'm kind of like, great, let's bring the self-help people in because if this, if this is actually something like co collectively so as a society, and again, our, who's in and who's out if we're talking about society, if this is something that we can 
help support, we're better for it. I mean, just the idea of proceeding with a, a, a degree of generosity and curiosity about what something is, where we are, like not foreclosing in advance. Um, and I do think art uh, offers that kind of um, freedom of movement. And in your personal um, life, you are able to balance those two um, things. On the one hand, your artistic output. On the other hand, your academic research. Is that something that, yeah, how does that work for you? Yeah, I have no balance. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, But I... I do have a bit of a strategy and here's Uh what my strategy has been. And I hope because of the different generations of people who've been doing this work, I hope that the next generations, the same strategy will not be important, but my strategy, because we started sound lab when I was in grad school and my strategy was to have an absolutely, uh, a, a wall between all of this stuff that was happening essentially through the night, through cities, through international undergrounds, and my persona as a graduate student, as a PhD student. And I don't think it's by chance that avatars became a point of obsession for me, because certainly in experimental electronic music, um, there was a whole world of aliases, the different names that you're known under, that you publish under, that you perform under. Um, And I really, really enjoyed that. I really Hmm. felt so comfortable in this idea of different names for different activities or purposes. And every once in a while I would get called out or things, context collapse, things would clash. Avital Renell was the co-director of my dissertation. Um, I don't know if that name is resonant for you, but perhaps for some of your colleagues, it will be. She was the subject of a huge scandal, I guess, last summer. Um, And one day I'm showing up for the seminar and she embraces me and she's like, oh, look at you, because I was profiled in some magazine or newspaper or something. And I felt really exposed and I felt, oh, this is quite dangerous because I just thought I was vulnerable to having my work not being taken seriously if people could say, oh, but she's just this or she's just that. So it was both enticing for people, but also an excuse to say, but this is not intellectual work. Um, So my choice was to keep them separate but at the same time, the uh, whatever return of the repressed, even though I don't use a lot of language from psychoanalysis because I don't really know it. And <laughs> I'm not so sure I, I believe in it, but um, that seemed like a handy figure. I was hired at MIT, I'm pretty sure, because I had an applied practice, because I had an experimental practice that was adjacent to the critical work that I was being trained in, in 
very, very theory heavy and philosophy centric comparative literature. And in fact, when I went to be interviewed at MIT for the position, one of the people asked me, are you a deconstructionist? <laughs> and like a total terrible simulator, I said, no, no, I'm not a deconstructionist. I believe using the right tools for the right job, which is totally sleight of hand, but whatever. They, they, they hired me. <laughs> but they hired me, I think. I mean, I can ask the people who hired me, but they hired me because I had somehow demonstrated that I could take something in hand and produce something around it, which is very MIT. Right, right. And then I had to learn how to teach engineers. And it turns out I really loved it. I really, and one of the things that I chafe, and the thing is, you and your colleagues, people who have a practice, whether it is making music, there's, there are all kinds of technical aspects of producing work and producing artistic, artistic work that is not, this conversation is not alien to you. Um, it's, I have ongoing struggles with some of my friends and colleagues who are just exclusively in a kind of um, critical and theoretical space where, you know, death by a thousand stabbings, like everything can get taken apart. And there's, there's, suspicious when I ask, okay, but then what shall we build? Because the idea of making something, maybe they see it as a kind of originary violence, you know, that there's something usurping or taking over of space by then building something. But, but somehow this is innately wired in me that the critique might also have with it. In some ways, it's, it's not just might also. I, I actually think there's an ethical imperative that the critique also offer possibility. And, you know, I mean, I don't think, you know, you've, you've profound post-war America critique from Frankfurt School when they're living in America or Dada, you know, based at Harvard. And these are really, they're productive and important. Anyway, I'm not sure how to end that sentence. Okay, Beth, there is, I mean, we, I would love to keep on going, but I think that's not the plan. Okay, well, let's, um, Let's see what we can line up for the future because... It would be lovely sounds, to continue talking. It sounds, it sounds like there are some um, uh, possible, some good intersections. Yeah, absolutely. So have a, have a great evening. And, thanks. And thank you, for your, um, thank you for the conversation. Sure, you too. Thanks a lot for this and have a lovely afternoon there.